I, I hesitate to do this because I don't want you guys to get all worked up and everybody starts side conversations and it takes like 20 minutes for me to get you back. But um, show the picture of this, this guy I want to tell you about. His name is Michael Franzese. And I just want, what do you think, what do you think he did for a living or does for a living? <laughs> Thank you. He's a mobster. I mean, like, I, I, like you look at him, you're like, oh yeah, definitely. That's a, like, you can tell by looking at me, you're like, no, he doesn't sell cars. He's not. He's not a teacher. That, he's a mobster. Now, shh, focus with me. Don't have, hold your side conversations till later because you don't want to be the person responsible for talking to somebody and they miss what God has for them uh, because God might punish you eternally for that. Um, not really, but it could be bad. You never know. Michael Franzese was not just a mob member. He was, he was way up there. He was the son of an underboss to one of the major five, five major families of, of the mafia in New York. And he actually didn't get into the, the mob right away. He went to college. His dad got arrested um, and was doing life in prison. And halfway through kind of college, Michael Franzese said, I'm done. He went and visited his dad in prison. And he said, Dad, I, I want to get out of prison. And dad said, well, if you're, I mean, I want to get out of uh, college. And his dad said, if you're going to do that, I want you to at least be protected and basically hooked him up to the mafia, what he'd grown up knowing and growing up seeing. And he, and, he, and he skyrocketed into the mafia. At one point, Fortune magazine did a, a whole magazine on the 50 most powerful uh, mafia bosses like in history. And Michael Franzese was the youngest guy on that list. He came in at number 18. He was just five behind a guy named John Gotti, if you've ever heard that name. A federal report on Franzese and, and his career said that he was the most uh, wealthy or the, uh, generated the most money for the mob since Al Capone. So it's those, those names, some that you've heard. He was the guy at one point, he alone with what he, he had devised and mafia, uh, whatever they do, you know, their, uh, their scams and things like that. He was bringing into the family between five and $8 million every week. Yeah. <laughs> Five eight minutes, like, woo! And every week, you're like, whoa. I mean, he was the guy. He was what the mafia referred to as a quote-unquote made man. Now, to become a made man, um, a wise guy is another slang term for it. Those guys were the ones that were in the mafia. That, that, they're the untouchables. Nobody, nobody messes with them. The only way you kill a, a, a made man is by permission from one of the higher-ups in his own family or you start a, a mob where he was a made man. To become a made man, we know, he says in a, in a video, he kind of skirts the, the, the answer when they ask him the question, but to become a made man, you had, to, you had to kill someone by contract. So they would give you a name of somebody, and this person's done the mob wrong, and when you killed him, that was kind of your initiation right into being a made man. And he was a made man. This guy was a bad, bad dude. Rudy Giuliani, who was the mayor of New York City, um, when he was a federal prosecutor, he, they, he went after him in a, in a big kind of public, you know, movie-like bad guys and good guys. And he promised publicly, he, he promised Michael Franzese, I'm going to catch you and I'm going to put you away and I'm going to put you in prison for over 100 years. And he never did. In fact, Franzese had more than 12 different grand jury appointments they got, got away from. Three major racketeering indictments that didn't stick. He was prosecuted for five different criminal trials, and he walked away not guilty from every single one of them. Even though, it's like, like in the movies, even though they knew he was the bad guy, they couldn't make it stick. And finally, they did. And he got put in prison for 10 years. 
<laughs> yeah, that's it. And he got out in seven on good behavior. But here's what's happened. This is what gets even crazier. When he got out, he met, or right, actually right before he went in, he met a woman who was a believer and she led him to Jesus. And Michael Francis is now a, a, what he does, he's not in the mob anymore. He got out of the mob. They had, they, the mob put a death sentence on him, which he has survived to this point. And he said, now I don't think anything's gonna happen. But now he travels the country and tells his story of what Jesus has done in his life. It's a pretty cool deal. Um, and he says, he says, the only way out of the mob is through witness protection or a bullet in the head. That's the way you get out of the mob. And he's like one of the few guys that hasn't. So incredible story. But here's the thing. He is a bad, bad dude. I mean, was. He's saved now. His life is different. But he's a guy that has a past unlike any of us in this room probably unlike any of us in this room will ever even have. And God is using him. Interesting thing is, and we're going to get into this underdog idea and look at a, at a guy named Paul. There's some of us in this room that have a past. And we've allowed that past to dictate our future. We've allowed that past to, to lean in. And, and we've decided, God hasn't, we've decided that the things that have happened to us or the things that we've done there's no way that God could use us. There's no way that anything good could happen. Uh, sure, God loves me. You might believe that God loves me, but deep inside, you don't think he really likes you. He loves me because he has to, I guess, because he's God. But God knows my past, and God, I'm pretty sure, doesn't like me that much. He certainly doesn't want to use me to do great things because there's all kinds of other people he could use. There's some of you guys in here, if statistics hold true, and I'm sure they do, there, there, there's a, a large group of people in here that struggle with addiction. When we talk about addiction, we normally kind of usually think of like drugs and alcohol first. And again, if the statistics are true, yeah, there's some drug users in the room. There's some, some alcohol users in the room. And there's some people that, uh, that, that your alcohol use, it isn't just about like the weekend. You're, you're now drinking during the weekdays when you have the opportunity. There's some of you, I mean, again, I know statistics are true, that in fifth grade, you wore the red ribbon. Say no to drugs. Never gonna do that. And, and now... And now you don't say no to drugs. What you say is no to common sense. And you go, it's just, it's just marijuana. Not that big of a deal. And, and if, we were, if we were honest, you would look at me. We could sit down. You, would probably, you might even be very vocal about it. You might say, hey, marijuana is not a big deal. Uh, I'm not addicted to it. And I might say, you know, maybe you're not physically addicted. Even though you can be, to say that you can't is a lie. Science, we've, we've proven that. You may not be physically addicted to it, but you're emotionally addicted to it. You can't quit. You can't quit because it changes who you are and changes who you're with. And there's some of you guys that I described that, that's you, I described you and you go, yeah, that's me. And, and deep inside of you, Satan has whispered to you over and over again, God loves you, but he doesn't like you. God loves you, but I mean, you might get to heaven, but you know, everybody talks about the mansion in heaven. You're gonna be like a bum on the street of gold. That's, what, that's all God's gonna have for you because of the, there's some of you guys in here, and I know this for a fact. There are a lot of people in this room, guys and some girls that are addicted to pornography. And you've had time after time after time where you've went, you know what, God, I don't want this. I want, God, I want to get out. I don't, I don't want to be drawn to it. And, but you haven't gone public with it because it's embarrassing. And you just made a, a, a promise to God, I'm done with it. I'm not going to do it anymore. And then everybody's gone. And you find yourself at that website again. You're an addict to it. There's some of you that are addicted to lying. You're so concerned about what people think about you that you've created this whole image of who you are that's not even real and, and that you're trying to live it out 
of, of who you are and what you like to do and things like that. And, and now you're like living a facade. And Satan's whispering to you. He's telling you on a regular basis, you, you don't have any hope. Again, yeah, God loves you, but man, if everybody around you, all your friends are sitting next to Collide, knew what we knew, and they would walk away from you in a heartbeat. Maybe not even addiction. Again, there's people in this room that have made one choice. They, they, they've lived a pretty good life. One choice, they made a decision one time, and maybe it's something like a sexual choice or something like that. One time they made a mistake, and, and, and they haven't done it again. They've, they've kind of walked away from that. But inside, the, the, in, inside your mind, you're going, you know what? There's, I, can't ever un, I can't ever change that. There's no way that I can, I can undo the past of what I've done. And so it started to affect your life. It affects the relationships, the people you hang out with. You would be a guy or a girl who says, you know what? I would love to marry one day a godly guy or a godly girl, but I've already messed up. I'm already not worthy of that. I'm, ar- I'm already disqualified. And so you've actually surrounded yourself with people who could never become that, that godly spouse that you want because you use, I'm not worthy to, I never could date somebody like that because I've messed up. And Satan goes, hey, yeah, you messed up. And you know what? You'll never get your virginity back. And he goes, and you know what? You're a terrible person. And you know what? God will never, God, you, you might have an okay marriage, but you're never gonna have the, the one that God wants you to have because you've, you've already messed up. That one decision, all of a sudden now we're living our life really as a spiritual underdog because we go, I don't have any hope. And then there's somebody in the room. It wasn't an addiction. And it, it wasn't a choice you made. You might have been a victim of someone else's choice. You might have been a victim of abuse or something like that. And it's it is so scarred and deep inside of you that Satan's using that. It wasn't anything you did. And Satan uses that and goes, you know what? You will, you will never be whole. You will never, you will never be like the person sitting next to you. God will never use you like he's using him on the stage. God will never use you like he's leading that person to lead worship because you are broken. Because just think about if, if somebody, if your parent or somebody you love did that to you, what would people who don't know you that well think about you and do to you? And you've allowed those lies, that's what they are, they're lies, to make you feel like God would never use you. And you've lived a life of a disqualified spiritual life, a life that has no power, and it wasn't anything that God said, it was something that you told yourself. You're living this life of condemnation and shame. And I want you to hear this. That's what Satan does. That's what the devil does. Satan's job is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Jesus told us. And what he does is he takes the things in your life, the mistakes, the addictions, the things that have happened to you, and he spins those and he tells you, you know what? You're worthless. You've got no value. God loves you, but he doesn't like you. God's not going to use you. You're not worthy of being a leader. You're not worthy of being used by God to change your world. And that's what he does. And he, and he lays this condemnation on you. He puts the shame on you and you begin to live your life that way and he begins to pile it on. And I want you to know this. That is not true. Some of you are living in a jail cell and Jesus has already swung the door open, but you're sitting in there refusing to leave. There's a story of a guy named Rodney Valentine. He was in his uh, 20s and he got arrested in North Carolina. This is just a few years ago. He got arrested for property damage to somebody and he got put in jail for two years. 
And he served out his two years in that North Carolina jail. And the day came, it was May 22nd, and they came two years after he'd been uh, put in there. And they, they said, hey, you're a free man. You're, you're going, you, you've paid your debt to society. And he looked at the police officers and he said, well, I need somebody to drive me to this, this local motel. And the police officers were like, well, that's, that's, that's not really how it works. Um, you're a free man now. You can do whatever you want. You can call a taxi. You can call a friend. Um, doors open. You're free. And he said, no, I need you to take me to this motel. I don't have a car. And they said, well, again, that's, that's not how it works. So he sits down in the jail cell and refuses to leave. And he's like, I'm not leaving. And so the police officers, they're like, they're like talking to him. They're like, listen, you got to get out of here. He's been there for two years. This isn't like a 24 hours. He's been there for two years. And they're like, listen, time's up. You gots to go, you know? We got other people coming. We need the room. He says, no. So here's what ends up happening. This is a true story. He refuses to leave. There's nothing they can do to him. So they actually arrest him for trespassing and shut the door of the jail cell and put him back in jail. <laughs> I don't know how long. That's, just, that's the end of the story. That's all. Guy won't leave. So they're like, okay, we can't kick you out. So I guess we're going to, you're not leaving. We told you. So you're trespassing. Okay, I guess you're still here. Close the door. Crazy. And that's a humorous story, but some of you guys, you're a believer. If you're, not, if you're not following Jesus, you're trapped in sin. That's a whole nother story. Jesus wants to free you of that. Jesus wants to open the cell in your life. But some of you are believers. You made a decision to follow Jesus. You made him boss of your life. He swung the prison door of sin wide open, and you had to sit in. You had to sit in because Satan was in the cell next door going, you can't leave. You're a criminal. Criminals are supposed to, and Jesus is going, listen, debt's paid for. I paid for it. You're free. And you're going, I can't go. I can't step out into freedom. I can't do that because, because I'm broken, because I'm not worthy, because I'm a criminal. That's what I am. And Jesus goes, you're not a criminal. I took all of your sin on me at the cross. I felt the wrath of God for what you did. And I opened the jail cell, get up and go. And you're sitting there. And we laugh at the guy from North Carolina who, who stays. But that's some of you guys. And you know what Romans says? Romans 8.1 says this. It says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have a relationship with Jesus, there is no shame. There is no condemnation. The God of the universe who your sin offended, that's who your sin was against. That God through Jesus has said, you know what? You're not condemned anymore, but you're living like it. Now, here's the crazy thing. The guy that wrote that, that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, is a guy named Paul. Romans, he wrote, wrote the, book, the letters of the Romans. We call it the book of Romans. He's the one that penned under the, the, the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Hey, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But this, this evening, we're going to look at Paul's life. Because Paul said that and Paul lived that. But I'm not sure Paul always felt that. I want you to go to the book of Acts, chapter 26. If you don't know where that is, if you can find uh, the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, there's some pretty big books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, if you're flipping a Bible, you might see some red ink. Uh, some, some Bibles put Jesus' words in red. Right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is the book of Acts. And I want you to go to Acts chapter 26. And I think up here it says we're starting verse four, but I want to start in verse one for a second. So you can kind of get the context of what's happening. It says, so Agrippa, he was the king, said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Paul's in trouble with the law because he's been preaching Jesus and he wasn't supposed to. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. He said, I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. 
Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now look at verse four. He says, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So what Paul is saying, he's standing before King Agrippa and he says, listen, King, I've been accused of some things. And I want to tell you my story. I want to, I'm giving my defense. And he says, you can ask any of the Jews. Paul was a Jew. You can ask any of the Jews, any of my people, any of my friends. I was the most radical of them all. I was, I was a Pharisee. I was a strict Pharisee. Paul says later about himself, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. What that meant is I was the religious leader of religious leaders. You think you line up a bunch of pastors? I was the one that was the leader of all the other pastors. I was that religious. I, 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 and, and he says, I started from my youth. I was a teenager when my fanaticism for God started. And basically he says, I want you to know this. You can, and he says, if they're willing to testify, ask them. I was an all-star. I was a celebrity. I, I was the one that everybody wanted to be like. And then skip on down to verse nine. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Paul lines out his past. He goes, this is this is who I was. I was, I was a, a Jewish all-star. And you know what? I'll tell you right now, I hated the people who followed Jesus. I hated them. He says, I opposed them. He's not neutral. He's not like, hey, you guys follow Jesus. I don't agree to disagree. You get that in school. You have friends that, that don't believe what you believe in, and it's an agree to disagree. Paul's not agreeing to disagree. Paul is, is violently opposing. In fact, that word opposing is a word that's used often to describe what happens when a boat is out on the sea or boat down the ocean and a storm blows in and all the winds and all the waves start rocking the boat and start trying to capsize the boat. That's the word of opposition he uses. He says, I was like a storm to their ship. You see what he said he did? He put them in prison. When they... When they were deciding if they were going to kill people because they followed Jesus, Paul says, I always voted yes. He beat them up. He said, I punished them often. In all the synagogues, he went into churches and beat them up. I tried to make them blaspheme. He would do things to torture them, to make them say things. And he said, I, I chased them to foreign cities. When they, when they got to a, another city, they got away to a foreign city in another country where they should have been safe. We went after them and chased them there and hunted them down and killed them. And look at the word that he uses in, in verse 11. He says, I had a raging fury. It's a guy with a past. He's like a Jewish mob boss. I, I, I threw some things up there. I mean, just, I mean, just kind of recapping his life. He says, my past was unexplainable rage. My past was physical abuse of people. My past, I threw people in prison and separated families. There were little kids who never saw their parents again because of me. I ended people's livelihood by putting them in prison. No more money for their families. I went into other cities, broke their law. I murdered people. That's his past. Now, if you know anything about Paul, what you find out later is there's 27 books in the New Testament. He wrote 13 of them, almost half of them. This guy who has this past that if anyone should have been disqualified, if there was anybody that God should have went, yeah, let's just get this guy off the face of the earth. It would have been him. 
Now look what Paul says in verse 12. He goes on next and he tells what happens to him. He says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. He was going to find some more Christians. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, because that was his name at first before he got changed to Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul's on his way to kill some Christians and this bright light shines and it's like he says it's bright in the sun that knocks everybody off their horses, donkeys, knocks them to the ground. And he hears this voice and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, why are you kicking against the goads? I put a picture of a goad. A goad was used like when you were, were moving oxen or cattle and, and they wouldn't move. They, they would take this, this is a, a fancy one and they'd kind of like prick them, stab them, not stab them like, you know, all that, but you know, poke them. And it was sharp and the animals would start going. And this voice calls out to, to, to Paul, whose name is Saul of time, and says, listen, why, why do you keep going against the things that, that are, why, why do you keep jumping to things that are painful for you? I've got a plan for you. Why do you keep fighting? I keep doing things to try to get you to see that, that what you're doing is wrong, but you keep fighting back at me. And then Paul says in verse 15, I said, who are you, Lord? He hears this voice and this right light. What is going on? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Jesus is already dead and resurrected. This is like a, an appearance of Jesus. Verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet for I've appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, seen, have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and in place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He goes, Lord, who, who, obviously this is God. Who are you? And he says, it's me. It's Jesus. And he says, and I'm showing up today because I'm going to change your life. I know your past, but I'm going to take your past and I'm going to take you and I'm going to turn you into somebody who shares the gospel with people who don't know the truth. I'm going to use you to bring light into dark places. I'm going to use you and your past and your pain to quite literally change the world. And that's what you're going to walk out of here tonight, I hope with. And understanding that your past and your pain, it could be God's platform to bring glory to his name. Your past, your pain, the things that, are, that, that, that you are ashamed of, the things that you don't want anybody to know about, the things that you're struggling with right now might be the very things that God uses to make his name famous amongst your friends. And Satan's going, you need to duck your head. God would never use you. And God's going, you know what? I made a, I made a habit in history of using people who were idiots, who were underdogs, who were broken, who had no hope to bring glory to my name. And so my question for you, and we're gonna talk about how, my question to you is why, why not you? Could it be tonight that the Holy Spirit says to you and makes it clear to you that the thing that you've been ashamed of, the thing that's held you back from stepping into leadership might be the very platform God wants to use to make his name famous? Could be. So What? What do we do? How do we go about it? Let me give you three things. I want you to write them down, if you will. And the first thing is this. You've got to let it go. 
as St. Elsa of Arendelle would say, let it go. Arendelle, sorry. I should know that. Yada, yada, yada. Let it go. Now, now, hear me when I say this. Listen, now I don't want you to lose this. Don't let my bad frozen joke make you lose concentration. When I say let it go, when I say your past is holding back, let it go. Hear me when I say this. That is way, way, way easier to say than, than it is to do. Some of you guys, I talked about abuse. I talked about something. Some of you guys have made decisions. Some of the things that happened to you to, in order for you to let it go, in order for you to move forward, you're going to have to sit down with a counselor. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to sit down for a, an extended period of time, a three week, six month, year. I don't know, week after week session with a counselor. And it's going to cost some money and it's going to be uncomfortable. And there's this stigma that if I go to counseling, I must be broken. And that is not true at all. In fact, I know a lot of people who, who go to counseling simply because it just it makes them feel better to sit down and talk with somebody about what's going on in their life and they don't have major issues going on. It's just better for them. Let it go is easy, but it may be difficult to do. You may have to get through some of this, this, this pain in order to put yourself in a position where God can use your pain and past. Some of you guys are in a relationship, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you're still in a relationship. You didn't just make one choice. It's an ongoing choice. And, and, and Satan is, and, and it is, it's sin. You may need to let that relationship go. You may need to say, hey, it's over and done. As much as I love you and as much as I enjoy this relationship and as much as I think it has a future, we've moved to a point that God has said, no, that we're out of bounds. And the only way for us to get back in bounds is in this relationship. You might have to let that relationship go. You might have to let your addiction go. And if you have an addiction to alcohol, drugs, lying, pornography, whatever it is, you'd be the first person to say, I wish it was that easy. And I'd agree, I wish it was. Because it's an addiction, you can't just let it go. But you know what that means? That means you're gonna have to tell your parents. It means you're gonna have to put some boundaries in your life. That means you're gonna have to have some adults come in maybe to coach you towards your parents if you're afraid to do that, to help them get active in your life and have some accountability in your life so that the addiction that's there can be broken, so that boundaries can be put in place, so that it doesn't keep recurring and it really becomes your past and not your present. See, that's what we're talking about. Some of the things in your past are, are, off, are also your present. You gotta let it go. Some of you are just holding on and you're so angry about your past and how you screwed up that you can't move forward. It might be counseling. It might be parent intervention. It might be some adults helping you. But you've got to choose to move forward to let your past and your pain be used for, as a platform for God's glory. So I say let it go. I realize if you wrote that down and you circled it, if you go, that's me, I realize that's a very simplistic answer to something that's very big. But you may need to, we may need to talk afterwards. You may, we may need to get you connected with our counseling center. We may need to have a plan to talk to your parents to get you to where God can start using you the way that he wants you to. Here's the second thing. You gotta commit to letting go of other people's past. You gotta commit to forgetting other people's past. Here's what, Paul lived in this, in this world, and this is very true of our world too. He lived in a world where they loved to bring condemnation on people. They loved when people messed up to heap it on them and to, and to kind of define them by that. And it wasn't just Paul's world, it's our world too. I mean, you turn on the news, any of those celebrity TV shows or things like that, it's always about some celebrity who's done something dumb. And you know what? I'm gonna be very honest with you. For me, as I journey through this passage of scripture, this is my application. 
I ask you to pick something and do something. This is mine. Letting other people's past go. I, I go to football games, and I talk about that a lot. And Friday nights, we travel around. Well, several years ago, me and some buddies, we drove down to the city of Kerrville, and we watched, uh, actually, I'll tell you that, we went down to South, South San Antonio to watch Kerrville Tivy play South San Antonio. Now, that was the name of the school, South San Antonio. I didn't even know they had a school. It was like, it was one of those very poor schools. I'm not kidding when I say this. The kids on the South San Antonio team didn't even all have the same jerseys on. They were like, you know, like, what? I mean, it was it just a low-income district. And we went down to watch primarily this, this guy that was a quarterback for Kerrville Tivy, and he only played the first half of the game. He scored seven touchdowns in the first half. And there wasn't a kid on that field that could catch him. I mean, he was running all over the place and, and, uh, and he was, he was kind of a, a, a top recruit that people were looking at. And, and so people asked me about it and they said, what'd you think? And I said, well, man, it was really hard to tell because, you know, he was, he was playing a school that's, that, that doesn't, not known for football, you know? And so, and then we only saw him for a half, but, so, but he did score like seven touchdowns. That guy went on, signed a scholarship, played division one quarterback in the state of Texas, got drafted by the Cleveland Browns. His name's Johnny Manziel. Some of you love him. Some of you hate him. I don't love him or I don't hate him, but you know what I'm guilty of? With my A&M buddies who I love to give a hard time, I'm guilty of using him in half the jokes I have. Because the guy went on to be a great football player, but his character, from what we see in the media, I've never met him. From what we see in the media, it's lacking. We know that he was involved with drugs and alcohol. We know that he took Instagram and photos all the time when he shouldn't. We know that he went to rehab. We know that football as an NFL player has been a struggle because of those things. And you know what's happened? The media never talks about football with a guy that they nicknamed Johnny Football because of all of his other things. And it's become very hit for the articles and the news stories to tell stories about all of the other issues that he's dealing with, dealing with personally. I don't know him. And when I have my Aggie friends and stuff like that, and we rib each other, and we're doing it good-naturedly, it's easy to make Johnny football jokes, you know, and, and to make fun of him and things like that. And you know what, in reality, if he was sitting right here, there is no way I'd ever make fun of him. One, because he could probably beat me up. Two, because I wouldn't do that. I mean, it, 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 that's me. But you know what? He's a celebrity. He's distanced. I don't know him. And so in my mind, he's been like free game. And, and, and that's what I struggle with. I'm just being very honest because I like to joke around. I like to kid. I like to make fun and things like that. And, and, I don't, and I like when people kid me and make fun. I don't mind when people make fun of my teams and things like that. I do too. And so I, I do. But you know what? What I realized through this, and it's something I've got to work on. I'm not saying I'm going to do it, fix it tonight. But it's something that I've already started praying about is why, why would I use somebody's past and their failures and their pain as a joke? I don't have a good answer. Why would you go to school and see people that you know have a past and judge them because of it? Choose not to sit by them choose to treat them differently than people who don't have a past because we're wired that way. But if God is going to use my past and my pain as a platform for his glory, one of the things I can do is learn how to let other people's past and other people's pain 
not be there present. Here's the third thing. The third thing is to fill your mind with truth. Fill your mind. Because some of you guys, you're living a story that's been spoken to you by the devil. You're living a story that's not true that might be spoken to you by a parent. A parent who has consistently, because they've got some own things in their life they're dealing with. They've got some, some mental illness. They've got some sickness they're struggling with. They've got their own issues. And you should love and respect your parents, but you don't, I know not everybody comes from homes where parents are doing everything they, they could. And you've had a parent that consistently has put into your mind that you're, you're a failure, that you're a screw up. And you started to believe that message. You had a coach or a teacher who harped on all the things you did wrong rather than things you did right. And you just started to believe that coach or that teacher because they were an authority in your life. And you're living a message that's not true. <coughs> I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm talking about letting the truth of Jesus, of who he says you are, penetrate your mind. And you start thinking about that and realize that what Jesus says is true. Not what your parents, not what a coach, not what a teacher, not what the devil, or not what you tell yourself. Those things aren't true. What Jesus says is true. Let me tell you what this looks like. Don't tell the story. They say all the time, and I'm getting to the point where I'm not, I probably shouldn't be doing this anymore. They tell pastors all the time, don't tell stories about your kids. My kids just give such good stories, though. <laughs> but I've got an eight-year-old now who's now getting very sensitive to that. So when I tell this story, let's not go out and talk with her about it. Because it's a, it's a real thing for her. She struggles with separation and anxiety. Um, and she's doing really good with it, but she struggles. If a man and I go on a date, it's hard for her. Some of you guys have babysat before, and you've seen it. I mean, there's, and she works really hard when she was a kid. I mean, she used to just cry. Now when we leave, she'll go into her room and just like lay her head down, and we'll go in, and she's like trying not to cry, and she's trying to be tough, but she just scared of those things. Well, that has parlayed itself out into at nights, she can't go to sleep, and she we, and she would go lay down in her bed. And this is, this is true. Like, like, I'm not kidding. Like, we'd lay her down in bed, get everybody lights on. We'd go sit down and watch a TV show. And she'd call out and we would pause it. And she would call out and she'd go, I can't sleep. And on the DVR, we were one minute into the show we started. And we we're like, yeah, no kidding. No one can sleep in one minute except for Marshall. He can do that. It's crazy. <laughs> he really can. That's a whole other story for a whole other time. But we're like, nobody can. We're like, stop stop calling out and go to bed. And we'd start the show. And she'd call out again. She'd come walking out. And it was, and, and we'd get to the point where we would like, we'd like, okay, you're gonna, if, I, if I have to come in there, you're going to lose TV all day tomorrow. If I have to come in there, TV snacks for two days. If I come in there, you're going to be grounded to your room. Like, like the other day, I was so frustrated. I didn't know what else. I said, you're going to be in your room for four hours, like not coming out. And she's like, four hours? I'm like, it's your choice. If you get it, you can go to bed or you can get up and have me grounded. And she's just wailing, crying. And, and she's like, the four hours is worth it. And would come out and give us a note saying, I'm sorry. And then we're like, well, why did you give us a note to say, I'm sorry, just go to bed, because now you're grounded. And then we were going through this, where I mean, it was like this tension in our home. Men are like, well, I don't know what to do. We, we, we talked talk to a friend who's counselor, the counseling center we use, where we're gonna have to have her talk to him. Amanda and I had already been to the counselor talk about strategies and tips a while back. And it worked a little bit. And it, it was just spiraling out of control. And here's what God did in my life. Man and I were fighting. We're yelling at each other because like we, neither of us want to kill the kid. We want the other one to do it, you know? And like, and so we're mad at each other because no one will commit murder and we don't want to be guilty. And uh, I go into my room. I go into my room and I can't remember. I, to, 
just to read my Bible. I, was, I mean, I was like, I got nothing. So I read my Bible, and I'm trying to think of what the passage was. Um, oh, oh, it was the passage where, where, where Scripture says that neither height nor depth nor, nor demons nor angels, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I'm reading that, and I'm not thinking about I'm just like reading it like because I just need Jesus to calm me down. And I'm reading about the love of God, how nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then God says to me as I'm reading that, something that I say to parents all the time that my mentor says to me, you're to be unto your kids as God is to you. And all of a sudden I was like, my child needs to feel. My child needs to feel like that neither height nor depth nor anxiety nor craziness can separate her from the love of her parents. So I go out, man, I start wrestling with it. And I go out and I'm like, Amanda, I feel like, let me go in there and talk to her. And she's like, no, we're not, we're not giving in. You know, we're going to let her cry herself. I mean, the guy's just wrestling with me and she comes out one more time. And so, and Amanda's like, man. And so I go in and it was this game changing moment for our family. And we're in the process of it still. I say game changing. We might still be dealing with this down the road. But Rayleigh and I just laid in her bed and we just started talking. And she started saying, I just, she said this. She said, when I start heading to bed, I start telling myself, I'm not gonna be able to sleep. I'm not gonna be able to sleep. I'm not gonna be able to sleep. And then I lay down and I know I can't sleep. And I know that I can't sleep and I get upset because I can't sleep because I know that then I'm gonna, I'm gonna need you guys. And I know that you're gonna get mad at me. And, and I know you love me, but I don't wanna be a bad kid. And I, and I know that, that that's what's, what's happening. And as she began to talk, it just this, she was in this spiral, telling herself how she... She wasn't gonna be able to go to sleep, then not being able to go to sleep because she told herself, and then wanting to say something, knowing that we we're gonna get mad, which riled her up, which made her not be able to go to sleep even more. And it just like got like this bigger and bigger and bigger cycle. And so one of the things we started doing, and we've been praying about this. I mean, there's been a lot of spiritual components too, but we just started talking even this week ahead of time as we're going to bed and just saying, hey, we're on the same team. And start telling us, you're not gonna be in trouble. I'll go lay down with you. I'll go scratch your back. I'll do whatever. I'll come 30 times a night if I have to because I want you to know that, that nothing's gonna separate you from the love of your dad. I don't wanna do that. I want us to be able to go to bed. To to... But we started doing this very simply. As she's getting ready for bed, I ask her, are you gonna go to sleep? You're gonna go to sleep good tonight, aren't you? Yeah, I am. And I've had her say, I know it sounds weird. I want you to say it. I want you to say out loud, I'm gonna go to sleep easy tonight. And she started saying, I'm gonna go to sleep easy tonight. And we've seen this drastic change. There's been a lot of things to it. But one of the things is this, she stopped telling herself she's a bad kid. She stopped telling herself, I'm not gonna go to sleep. And it's beginning to change things. Again, it's not a power positive thing. We're talking about the spirit of God, listening to what he says. Stop telling yourself, I'm worthless. Stop telling yourself, I'm not worthy to have a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend one day who loves God. Stop telling yourself, there's no way I could be a leader because I've screwed up. Stop, stop telling yourself that God's not going to use me because I've got a past, because your past and your pain just might be the platform that God wants to use to bring glory to his name. So here's a challenge to you. Here's an application. I say, you know, start putting truth in your mind. Some of you in your small groups, you're doing a, a quiet time. You're doing a devotional on you version as a small group, I hope some of y'all are still doing that. We started doing it at the beginning of the year. Hope you are. Maybe you go to your small group and go, hey, let's pause what we're doing. And you get on that version devotional and you search identity. And you find a, a, a regular quiet time. I know there's one that's a 30-day one. There's one that's a four-day one that's about who you are in Christ. And it'll start every day putting scripture into your mind, giving you verses that tell you who Jesus says you are, not who the world says you are. Jesus says that you are a son of the king, the princess of the king. God who says that you are made righteous now, that you have been justified, 
that you are sin free because of what Jesus, and you start putting those things into your mind so that you can overcome your past and God can start using it. Tell you one last story. What time is it? Okay, run, one last story. Are we doing another song? Okay, let me tell you this real quick. Some of you know my story. I didn't have a story of drugs and alcohol. I didn't have a story of addiction. I didn't have a story of abuse. I, I was, I was the, a, a good kid, I guess you'd say. But I have a past, we all do. Part of my past involved a, a dad who walked out on me. I mean, bless God, God brought me a stepdad who when I tell stories about my dad, that's who I'm talking about. I'm talking about my stepdad. He, he's, man, loves Jesus. He's great. But I had this biological dad that, that caused wounds and, 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 and brokenness in my life. And I didn't really realize it until I, I was much, much older. I mean, I, I saw the consequences of it, but I, I had a dad. And some of you might resonate with this. When I lived in Germany for three years, I think I got maybe two or three letters from him. I had a dad, a biological father, who when I graduated from high school, he lived in the same town I lived in and didn't drive over the football field for graduation. He told me all the time when I'd spend weekends with him, how much he loved me. In 16 years, uh, from when I was five to when I was 16, when they, when they divorced to when I graduated, one birthday present. When I graduated from college, he said he was gonna come because he didn't come to high school graduation. I had other family there. I guess he never showed. I'm his only son. And when I got married, his only son, he didn't come to the wedding. It was a 60-minute drive. When I, my wife gave birth to his one and only granddaughter, didn't come. We drove up there because he didn't even have a cell phone. Didn't have a phone to even contact. We just drove up hoping he'd be there to bring his only great. I get emotional and, I, and I've really kind of moved through some of this. To bring his great. I get emotional because it's just sad to me. Not even for me. I just can't imagine. I can't imagine when my children one day have my grandchildren. Man, try to keep me out of the hospital room right? I'll be like rappelling down the hospital window. like That was the biological dad I had. Six or seven years ago, because he'd drank so much, done so much stuff, he was walking across the highway and fell down on the highway, got back up, made it to his house, fell down, ambulance came, he never woke back up. That's my past. But God has used those stories over the last 20 plus years to empathize with teenagers who have bad parents, or should I say parents who make bad choices. To empathize and to understand, not just to sympathize, but to feel what it's like to say, hey, I understand, I really get it that you feel like your dad doesn't, your biological dad doesn't care. I know what it's like to share the truth of Jesus, the gospel with your father, who you're not sure is a believer, who might spend an eternity in hell and for him to look at you and say, I don't want to talk about it, I don't care. God, use those, that past, that pain, to 
do great things for himself. And I don't want to get prideful, but I will say one of the things I'm proud about is my kids won't ever have that. They won't. They have a dad that's going to talk about faith with them. They have a dad who's going to be there. Dad who's going to take off work to take them on dates. Sorry, I'm getting emotional. Emerson, I said something the other day. I said, I said, hey, I love you. And she goes, I know, you tell me all the time. <laughs> I was like, yes. You know, I didn't have that. But God is taking my past and my pain. And he's using it as a platform to bring glory to his name. He wants to do the same with you. Just so you can let him. He's not the, you're not the one waiting on him. He's waiting on you. I hope tonight has uncovered some things for some of you that you need to wrestle through, work on, release, to let it go. You got small group ministers, you've got staff, you've got people who would love to journey with you if you need it. But let God do what he's gonna do in your life. Let your past and your present be used for his glory. Don't be an underdog. Be the champion God created you to be.